Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. Hopefully all of you are still out there listening. Uh, We're recording this on July 1st. We just finished the July 2nd episode, and we're doing this one now uh, because by the time you get this, I will have been on vacation for most of Independence Day week. Uh, I'm leaving Tuesday. Well, I will have left Tuesday night. So it's, the time shifting here always fucks me up. Um, so you're not going to get this episode until July 9th, but just know that it was recorded a week ago. So for all I know, the dead have risen and are walking the earth, or there's been a nuclear holocaust or whatever, uh, given the way things are in the country right now. There's no telling. But hopefully my uh, Blueberry media host is still working properly and WordPress is working properly, and all of this will automatically Uh, go out into the ether around 4 o'clock in the morning on Monday, July 9th, and all of you, including me, will have a commute on Monday to listen to it, Uh, because Monday when I get back, I've got to be in court fairly early in the morning. But because we are recording this a week ahead of time, this is not a normal episode of Fiskamal. This is Volume 7 of W.T. Fisk, What the Fisk. This is where we answer your questions. Lesser podcast hosts might call this a mailbag of some sort or a listener question episode. Uh, We decided to make it What the Fisk because we can. Uh, So we're going to get into your questions shortly. We've got several of them this time. I'm actually really happy because I had a lot of people who are not the usual suspects. Like when we're desperate for questions, there are a few folks that I can count on to just come up with questions to send us. Uh, didn't have to worry about this time. I have a, a lot of people, a lot of different people who send in questions. A lot of Supreme Court stuff. This is going to be a very Supreme Court heavy uh, list of questions. But I'm thankful to all of you who sent stuff in because it makes my life so much easier instead of having to beg people to ask me questions online. All right. Regular episodes will resume next Monday. Well, the Monday after you get this. So the 16th. So it's going to be three Mondays from now for me as of the date we're recording this, but it'll be just one more Monday after you get this particular episode. July 16th, we will be back with your weekly dosage of criminal justice fuckery. Uh, If you have not already done so, please make sure to join the conversation online. We are on Twitter at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. The Twitter account does not go on vacation. So even though I will be out of town, I will still be tweeting and retweeting, as the case may be. If you decide that you want to leave us a written comment, you can do that on our website, Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you'd like to become one of our patrons, the financial sponsors who keep this podcast going, you can do that on Patreon dot com slash fisk that is patreon.com slash fsck all right so what we've done we've made some tweaks compared to the prior what the fisk segments so i'm going to have all of the twitter stuff first all of the open uh tweeted out publicly twitter stuff first then stuff that comes in via dm will be second and then we didn't have any facebook questions this time but i'm going to put the facebook questions as the next chunk and that will be how we structure these in the future And instead of trying to use people's names, because a lot of folks, now that Twitter lets you use like 180 fucking characters to put what your name is, uh, a lot of people have chosen to not actually put their names as their names. I'm only going to use your Twitter handle, and if I can't pronounce it, I will spell it out as best I can. So just know from now on, that's going to be the plan. 
because so far as I'm aware, there's still a limit on the length of a Twitter handle, which makes it slightly easier for me compared to, you know, call your congressman at 1-800-blah-blah-blah that people are using for their names on Twitter these days. All right, so the first question comes in. This is the first of several questions related to the Supreme Court from at... O-W-A-B-N-W. Don't know what that means, but just know this is from them. And the question is, I've noticed that most of the SCOTUS rulings lately have been five to four decisions. How strong are those rulings with respect to precedent? And the short answer is, uh, they're the same as any other precedent with respect to lower courts. So they're equally binding Uh, Anything that the Supreme Court decides is going to be binding on all federal courts, so the federal courts of appeals and the federal district courts. It is potentially binding on a state court depending on the nature of the case. So if the lawsuit is the state doing something that it shouldn't, the Supreme Court saying that is unconstitutional will block the state from doing that particular thing uh, if it's something different. So, for example, if you see a ruling on how a rule of evidence should be interpreted in one particular scenario, uh, use the exclusionary rule is probably my go-to example where if the police have done something wrong, typically evidence they have seized uh, gets suppressed. At least that used to be the case. It's up to the state whether or not they want to adopt that particular ruling as their own. If they decide not to, then that's fine. So often what you'll have happen is you'll have state Supreme Courts decide that how the Supreme Court has ruled in a particular non-binding decision is something that they want to follow, and then that will become binding on the state courts. So that is applicable regardless if the decision is unanimous or 5-4 or something in between. There have been a lot of narrow decisions over the course of the Supreme Court's history for the past 200-plus years. Now, it's just like other precedent. It is only binding on the Supreme Court itself for as long as the Supreme Court chooses to allow it to be binding. There is no particular rule that requires the Supreme Court to adhere or honor any particular precedent, even if it's unanimous. You know, if a nine to zero decision comes by that the Supreme Court later decides is wrong, they're certainly free to overturn that. And same deal with the five to four decisions or the six to three decisions. Uh, The only changes where you see that differ tends to be new facts, new justices added to the bench since the case was last decided, or something has happened within the populace that the court has concluded that the outcome was just wrong. So, for example, recently in a Supreme Court case, Trump versus Hawaii, regarding the Muslim ban, we do have some questions about that. The majority opinion overruled Korematsu versus U.S., which is the one that authorized Japanese internment camps. Now, the legal reasoning of Korematsu, if you read it, there's nothing plainly wrong about the legalese. What's wrong is that, you know, interring American citizens based on nothing more than their race is fucked up. And the public has recognized that over the 50-something plus years. My years are off. Over the 70-something years since we had World War II. Um, So the Supreme Court has decided that's no longer binding precedent. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other examples. You had the one relating to the National Labor Relations Board. I can't remember the predecessor case. I know the the NLRB case is NLRB versus Jones. And basically, it was a scenario where the Supreme Court had decided just a couple years prior 
that the, um, gosh, what's it called? I'm blanking. I'm doing a disservice to other lawyers right now that I cannot remember these cases. Uh, Congress had passed a law about coal mining, trying to regulate coal mining conditions. It, it was the Guffey Coal Act. That's what it was. I remember Guffey. And the Supreme Court decided that that exceeded congressional authority under Article 2. And then two years later, you had NLRB versus Jones, which gets taught in law school, where the Supreme Court upheld that act uh, as being a proper exercise of Congress's Article II commerce powers, the ability to regulate interstate commerce. They could regulate working conditions, even though the Supreme Court just you know two years prior had said you couldn't do that with the coal industry. And the reason why that change took place is that one particular justice had changed how he was voting on a fairly regular basis because of politics, essentially. I can't remember which justice it was. Was it Potter Stewart? Well, I know you're not a lawyer. I'm trying to remember who it was. It was someone they used to teach in school. They called him the switch in time that saved nine, a reference to Franklin Roosevelt's court packing plan. Uh, Basically, FDR proposed appointing one additional judge or justice, depending on the court, for every judge or justice who was over 70 years of age and didn't retire. He He billed it as an age thing. Uh, But in reality, he was annoyed that the Supreme Court kept striking down New Deal legislation. And this particular justice, it it was the guy who it was the he was the youngest one on the court. I can't remember who it was. No, I remember. It's the other Roberts. I don't remember his first name. I know his last name is Roberts because PBS did a documentary on it. And they talked about him. And that part of it was narrated by John Roberts, who is the chief justice now. Uh, So Google it. There's another Roberts who used to vote as part of the what was considered the conservative block of the court back then. The court packing plan came out and it became this big political deal. And then he suddenly started voting with the liberals. So like the most glaring example was a pair of minimum wage laws that were decided months between each other where the minimum wage law for New York was struck down. And then months later, this other Justice Roberts switched his vote, so the minimum wage law in Washington was upheld. And the only change, substantively, was the political discussion over the court packing plan. There was no substantive difference in the laws. So 5-4 decisions are considered no different than any other majority decision of the court. Now, there are some certain circumstances where a unanimous decision is seen as carrying more moral weight Uh, The classic example really is Brown v. Board of Education, where uh, discrimination in K-12 education was held to be unconstitutional. It was a very big deal that the court did that unanimously because it was striking down something that had been in place and firmly entrenched within at least half of the country uh, for a tremendous period of time. So Earl Warren, who was the chief justice back then, went out of his way to finesse the opinion to make it so that all of the justices would sign on. And you kind of saw that with uh, what's called Brown 2, where the Supreme Court, having declared this discrimination unconstitutional, then said that it, uh, the states could use all deliberate haste to implement it. Uh, which is one of the most oxymoronic statements you will find in all of Supreme Court jurisprudence. What is all deliberate haste? Um, so that's that's kind of you have the occasional case where there's some additional moral authority to a unanimous opinion. But beyond that, five four decision is just like anything else. Where things get interesting is where you have less than majorities. 
So justices will split a myriad of ways, so you end up with what are called plurality opinions, where only three or four justices will actually have an opinion, but it's not a majority of the court. Uh, You also have certain circumstances where a particular snippet of law appears in both the majority opinion and the dissents. So even though the decision on the particular facts is a a majority or a 5-4 majority, the support for that particular proposition is more than that. So, for example, looking at the uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop decision that just came down a few weeks ago, the majority opinion, which was a 5-4 to majority, uh, or was it a 4 with a 1 concurring in the judgment? I, I don't remember. Go look up the Twitter thread. I linked it in a prior episode. But essentially, you have the majority opinion talking about the importance of facially neutral laws of general applicability. And then in the dissent by Justice Ginsburg, she uses that exact same language. So an appellate court, looking at that opinion, even though the majority holding is still technically binding on the circuits, if they're faced with a scenario where the constitutionality of a facially neutral law of general applicability is at issue, instead of the 5-4 majority, you now have, in fact, seven justices or nine justices, whatever it is, however many justices there were, I'm, I'm blanking on the particular count, but you have more than five who agree that laws that are facially neutral and generally applicable are still enforceable. Uh, so that's a, that's a very messy and disorganized response to the question, but the moral of the story is a 5-4 decision is fundamentally no different than a 9-0 decision. If you don't like it, what you end up having to do is, well, I'm not going to get to that because that's going to be another question later on. So put a pin in that piece. We're going to come back to it. Um, But yes, 5-4 decisions are still generally equally binding. Next question is from C. Silver and Gold. And he says, curious as to a sane conservative's perspective on the recent SCOTUS ruling. He's referring to uh, the case Epic Systems versus Lewis. I'll explain the details on that in a minute. Assuming you support the ruling, would you support a federal law restraining employers' power to force employees into arbitration? How about state laws? I suppose in the ideal fantasy limited government world, employees would have enough choice in employers that they'd just refuse to take jobs with those clauses if they didn't like them. A kind of free market solution to the problem, but I feel like that would never happen, lol. And I agree, that probably would never happen. Um, So arbitration is something that, for better or worse, I studied at length in law school. Uh, We had a a certificate program. It's kind of like a minor in undergrad in alternative dispute resolution. And part of the criteria of that is that I had to take extensive classes on uh, arbitration, mediation, negotiation, a whole bunch of other garbage. Um, Arbitration in general, let me give you, let me back up for people who aren't lawyers. So arbitration has been around for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. It started in... I want to say uh, pre-Christian times, if I if I know my history correctly, um, it started in the Middle East, where businesses who had a dispute, they would each have an advocate, or they would each pick a judge. Basically, those two judges would pick a third judge, and you would have this panel of arbitrators who did, would decide. Uh, who wins, in a nutshell, who resolves that particular dispute. That's an oversimplified history of it, but the gist of it is it's been around since all of us have been alive and all of our parents' parents have been alive and since the founding fathers were alive and so on. The benefits to arbitration, in theory, were that things could be resolved faster, 
than going through a normal court system. It could be done at a lower cost. Uh, there was greater finality to it. You couldn't appeal an arbitration decision. And in certain cases, it could be done confidentially. So you wouldn't have all your business out in the public if you're going through the court system. So that is the basis for why arbitration has historically been favored by the government. So you have this 1925 law called the Federal Arbitration Act that basically says when it comes to a, a federal court decision, a f- arbitration clause cannot be invalidated on any basis that is not a basis for invalidating the entire contract. So, for example, if the contract is void because someone didn't sign it, that's fine. You can use that to invalidate the arbitration clause as well. But you can't pick some new basis. You can't say that the contract is fine, but the arbitration clause is unconscionable, for example. That's the gist of how the FAA works. Uh, FAA, again, Federal Arbitration Act, not the Federal Aviation Administration. So this was passed in 1925. The gist of it is, basically, your arbitration clauses have to be enforced as they're written. That's the, the very steeply boiled down to the pure essence of it. Well, this decision in Epic Systems Core versus Lewis, this was actually a, what's called a consolidated case where there were three different cases. It was uh, Epic Systems. Uh, I don't remember the other two. I know one was the NLRB again, the National Labor Relations Board, and one was uh, Austin and Bird or Ernst and Young, some kind of accounting firm. I can't remember. Uh, but basically, the Supreme Court took all three of these together. And the question was whether employer arbitration clauses, something put into your employment contract, could they force you as an employee to use arbitration on an individual basis? Could they block you from doing a class action? And the Supreme Court in a five to four decision said that, yes, that was allowed. That was fine under the Federal Arbitration Act. Uh, The people who were saying that it was not fine argued that the Fair Labor Standards Act, which was adopted by Congress later, would serve to preempt that particular application of the FAA. That's the gist of the case. Now, the decision was right, both on the law and on the precedent. The main issue was actually already decided back in 2013, but you're not going to see that in the media coverage. Uh, There was a separate case by American Express. It was American Express Company versus Italian Colors Restaurant where there was a question of whether or not forcing individual arbitration actions, blocking class actions in arbitration, whether or not that was allowed. And the Supreme Court said that, yes, that was fine. You could put in your contract that you could block someone from doing a class action arbitration. Um, So the precedent was there. The law is already there. The FAA has been interpreted a bazillion times. Uh, That particular outcome was not a surprise at least not to me. Now, again, I'm not a Supreme Court scholar. Don't, you know, no one's going to have me on their TV show to opine on what the Supreme Court will do in any particular case. But I was not surprised by this particular decision in 2018 because of that 2013 case. I just didn't see a substantive difference. Um, so going to the question of would I support restricting employers' rights to compel arbitration, I'd probably be fine with that. And the reason why is this. So one, I dislike arbitrations. I've done several of them. I think they suck. And the reason why is that things have gotten so convoluted that they're often at least as time-consuming and at least as expensive 
as going through the normal court process. That's just the reality of it. Plus, from my standpoint as a litigator, I like knowing I have the option to appeal if I lose because sometimes you just get hosed by a judge. It doesn't matter if it's an arbitrator or an elected judge or an appointed judge. Sometimes the judge is just wrong, and you need to have the ability to appeal just in case. Uh, but I also dislike class actions because I think those have gotten bureaucratized to the point that the only people who typically benefit are the lawyers who get multi-bazillion dollar legal settlements and then I get a random $5 check in the mail because I'm part of some class that I didn't know existed. Uh, so I'd be fine with restricting employers' ability to use those clauses. The question would be, how do you do it? I would like to see it done on a state-by-state basis, which is what we already have with what are called restrictive covenants. So things like non-compete clauses, non-solicitation clauses, those sorts of things. Each state has already enacted case law on what it considers enforceable versus what it considers excessive. So for example, in North Carolina, If you have an employment contract that has a non-compete clause, the court is going to look at the period of time that clause is going to be in effect, the the, uh, geographic scope that it covers, and the types of jobs that it prevents you from having. And they apply a balancing test to that. So basically, any clause that's over two years is going to be invalid. Clauses less than that are normally enforceable unless they're for some obscene geographic scope or they block an obscene number of jobs and so on and so forth. And there's case law here in North Carolina that covers how all that works. I like that type of approach because each state should have the ability to tailor most of its laws for itself, for its citizens. And then it's up to the companies to decide, do you want to do business in the state or go somewhere else? I don't like this one-size-fits-all going through Congress you know, to nationalize these types of decisions way of doing it. And because of that, you'd probably have to repeal the Federal Arbitration Act in order to get the state-by-state approach that I would prefer. Because the fact is, we've talked in prior podcasts about this notion of preemption, where once Congress does something, states typically are prohibited from doing a similar thing unless the things that they do enhance the federal objective. Uh, So the federal objective of the FAA is to favor arbitration clauses, to treat them as practically sacrosanct in practice, which made sense back in 1925 when it was passed. It does not make sense now almost a century later when things are as convoluted as they are. Uh, So that's where we're at. I, I agree with the outcome of those particular decisions as far as the law and the precedent goes. They were right decisions. I don't like the effect of them, but that's because we have shitty laws on the books and legislators who don't legislate. So thank you for that question at C Silver and Gold. The next one is from at Yesagumi. This is regarding the Muslim ban version 3.0 case. Uh, the case is entitled Trump versus Hawaii. He says, I wanted to see the mofo go down in flames, screaming, curse you, Snoopy. But realistically, I expected the ban to be upheld on the grounds of executive deference. How did it get this close? And if you go through the decision, the reason why it was a 5-4 decision and not a 7-2 decision is whether the injunction that the district court issued blocking the Trump administration from implementing the ban while the trial still took place. Uh, That became the dividing line between the five-justice majority and Justice Breyer and Kagan, who had one of the two sets of dissents. And then uh, Ginsburg and Sotomayor had the other dissent. The issue was, does the injunction stay in place while the trial proceeds? Because what the majority decision decided 
was that the injunction was going to be dissolved and the case was remanded for further proceedings. They still have to actually have a trial. They still have to go through discovery, have hearings and all that other stuff. Um, if you go through and read the Briar Kagan dissent, what they say is that they're fine with that, with the trial going forward, but they would have argued that the injunction should stay in place because there was enough circumstantial, uh, not technically evidence because there hadn't been a trial to have evidence introduced, but enough stuff based on how ICE and CBP were implementing things, Trump's tweets and everything else, that they would have wanted to see the injunction still in place just as kind of like a, a protective measure. So I would go through and read them. It's Once you kind of get it from the, you know, once you learn the gist of what they're talking about, it's easier to understand the contours. So you have a four-justice majority that was fine with the executive deference piece, uh, Thomas was not only fine with the executive deference piece, but also hated the idea of what are called global injunctions, where a district court can enjoin the government from doing something across the entire country, because his argument is that favors forum shopping, picking a particular uh, judicial district to bring your case. And he also argues that that's not found within the Article Three powers of the court. Uh, then you have the two justices, Breyer and Kagan, who are generally fine with the executive deference, but are suspicious enough of Trump in particular that they wanted to keep the injunction in place just in case while the trial proceeded. And then you had Ginsburg and Sotomayor, who think that Trump's a racist and the executive order was racist and the whole thing needs to go down in flames regardless of any particular consequences on a future president. And those are really the, the dividing lines in that particular decision. So thank you, Yasugumi, for that question. The next one is from at Samurai Knitter. She asks, again, this is relating to Trump v. Hawaii. Uh, she says, is there a way to appeal a Supreme Court decision? So in the customary, commonly understood sense, no. You know, it's not like if you lose in district court, you appeal to the Court of Appeals. You lose there, you appeal to the Supreme Court. You lose there, you appeal somewhere else. That type of appeal does not exist. Now, with that said... There are ways around Supreme Court decisions. So one, of course, is you have cases. Each case is theoretically dependent on its own facts. So if you have a case that is significantly different enough that you could get to a different outcome, then the Supreme Court opinion might not apply. And you see this a lot of times with courts of appeals where you got to keep in mind in terms of the number of lawsuits, thousands upon thousands upon thousands get decided by the courts of appeals that never make it to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court denies what's called a request for certiorari to have them review the case. So a lot of times where a court of appeals is faced with a case where there's a Supreme Court decision generally on point, but applying it would lead to an unjust outcome. So it's either, you know, uh, you just it would just be very bad to apply that to that particular case. It would seem immoral to do that. Seem like someone is getting terribly screwed over. What you'll find a lot of times is appellate court judges will find some kind of fact that makes the case different from a case that the Supreme Court heard, and they'll say it's different just enough to make it so that the decision doesn't apply. That's called distinguishing the case. So what you'll see a lot of times is future Supreme Court decisions are based on accepting appeals where the Court of Appeals has not applied a particular Supreme Court decision in a way that the Supreme Court likes. They've tried to distinguish the case away, and the Supreme Court doesn't like that and comes back and says no. So there's that piece. You can distinguish a new case from an old case based on the facts. Uh, a lot of Supreme Court decisions 
are interpreting statutes. They're not interpreting the Constitution. We've talked before about what's called the doctrine of constitutional avoidance, where if a court can, it will not interpret the Constitution when it can find an alternative statutory interpretation to do the job. And what that means is you could just change the statute. Once you change the statute, the precedent is no longer useful. So, for example, in the Trump versus Hawaii case, that decision is rooted in an interpretation of the INA, and it's the Immigration and Nationality Act. That's the set of statutes that the Supreme Court was deciding. If Congress amends the INA, then that decision is no longer good law. It's no longer binding precedent because the law itself has changed. Uh, You also see in several cases in history where we've passed constitutional amendments to undo Supreme Court cases. The most famous is probably Dred Scott v. Sanford, where the Supreme Court ruled that slaves were chattel in perpetuity. They were not persons. They could not have standing to file suit in court. And because of that, in part, we passed the 13th and 14th Amendments to the Constitution after the Civil War, abolishing slavery and establishing that all people naturally born under the laws of the United States are citizens who would have standing in the court system. Uh, And then, of course, if you want, you can always just hope that you get new justices one day and that these new justices will change the decision. I don't like that particular approach because it's one of those games that both sides can play with equal ferocity. And when we get in the habit of just swapping out justices and hoping they undo all prior Supreme Court decisions we don't like, uh, that ends up eventually swinging the other way and you get fucked over royally. I'd rather see that change through our legislative branch or through the constitutional amendment process, uh, basically electing better Congress critters, which is vitally important. Uh, So those are basically the ways you get around a Supreme Court decision effectively. So at Samurai Knitter, thank you for that particular question. Next one is from at Tim underscore Cronin underscore 81. He says, how is it constitutional for Dick's Sporting Goods and Walmart to discriminate due to age? And this relates to them announcing that they were not going to sell handguns to anyone under 18 years of age. Could a liquor store do the same thing? For example, not sell alcohol to anybody under the age of 25. Uh, So there's two pieces to this. One is when you're looking at issues of equal protection, you have to figure out first who is the actor doing the discriminating. So a lot of constitutional stuff is premised on government action. The government cannot violate your constitutional rights. Private businesses typically can. As far as how we things are set up, there may be laws that prohibit that. We're going to touch on that in a second. But the, the constitutional prohibitions generally don't apply to private businesses. So once you've determined who is acting, is it government action or is it private action, you then look into the type of discrimination that is taking place and the degree of scrutiny that gets applied to it. So let's talk for a little bit about the government. So under the 14th Amendment, that's where you have the Equal Protection Clause as part of the Supreme Court's Equal Protection uh, case law. You have levels of scrutiny that get applied in much the same fashion as you'd see in the First Amendment type context. Uh, So distinctions that are basically arbitrary. So your race, your religion, your national origin, things that have no real bearing on your quality as a person, those are considered protected classes. Something that discriminates based on that is considered a suspect classification. And because of that, they get what's called strict scrutiny. Now, those of you that don't remember from the earlier uh, Law 140s, under strict scrutiny, 
the law or action or classification system, it's presumptively invalid. The burden is on the government to show that it serves a compelling government interest, that it's narrowly tailored to suit that interest, and that it's the least restrictive means to achieve that interest, that that classification is absolutely necessary in a nutshell. And what you find is pretty much everything fails strict scrutiny. Uh, There's a limited exception where the Supreme Court has held, for example, that positions like law enforcement, uh, it's allowable to restrict those positions to citizens, where normally national origin doesn't play a role, alienage doesn't play a role, it's considered suspect. Uh, For a narrow class of jobs, the court has held that discriminating based on that is allowed. Uh, So then you have distinctions that can serve a real purpose, but also be used to improperly discriminate. The main one is gender. Uh, The other one is what's called bastardy, you know, having a kid out of wedlock. Uh, Those are considered quasi-suspect classifications, and they get what's called intermediate or heightened scrutiny. In that scenario, the classification has to serve an important government interest as opposed to a compelling government interest. It only has to be important. And the classification has to be substantially related to the interest as opposed to being narrowly tailored and least restrictive means. It only has to be substantially related. Uh, So, for example, the previous prohibition on women in combat roles in the military was typically upheld because there was considered an important government interest in an effective military and there was concerns that women, their physical differences generally being smaller and lighter than men, uh, made that a problem. So that has been upheld in the past. Whereas things that, that doesn't matter, you know, if you're sitting behind a computer, a government discriminating on, uh, you know, against women for a computer job, that wouldn't make a difference because none of the things that make men and women different are really at play in the context of typing on a keyboard. Uh, and then you have all other distinctions. So anything that is not race, religion, national origin, alienage, gender, bastardy, anything else is considered uh, a normal distinction. It gets what's called rational basis review. Now, under rational basis, the burden is on the person challenging the classification to prove that it is not rationally related to a legitimate government interest. So that's where you get the rational basis from. It has to be rationally related, and the government interest only has to be legitimate. So if you go back through it, uh, again, strict scrutiny, the government interest is compelling. Intermediate scrutiny, it's important, and in rational basis, it's only legitimate. And then the connection between the classification and achieving that interest has to be compelling under strict scrutiny, only substantially related under intermediate scrutiny, and merely rationally related under rational basis. So this is all other classifications, so discriminating based on age, based on disability, based on criminal background, based on political affiliation, all of that stuff does not violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment unless it is not rationally related to a legitimate interest. So almost everything gets upheld on that basis with very few exceptions. Now, one thing you don't hear anywhere on this list is things like sexual orientation, because the Supreme Court has not actually decided whether or not uh, what scrutiny gets applied there. In this particular case, there's no federal standard for it. The assumption is that it would end up becoming 
a heightened standard type case, an intermediate scrutiny type case in the same field as gender, but no one knows. The Supreme Court hasn't actually ruled. So that relates all to government discrimination, government action. Now, in the context of a private business, you start with a blank slate. You presume that the business can discriminate against anybody for any reason about anything, and then you look at whether or not there are statutes that block them from doing that. So there's not going to be any constitutional prohibitions on them from doing that, but there may be statutory prohibitions. So for example, in an earlier episode, we covered in the Law 140, the Federal Civil Rights Act of 1964, and Title II of that act that prohibits places of public accommodation from discriminating based on race. That is a federal law that blocks restaurants, movie theaters, hotels from discriminating based on race. Uh, You have, uh, for example, the Federal Age Discrimination in Employment Act that forbids uh, discriminating against old people in getting jobs. So again, that's a federal law that prohibits a certain type of discrimination only in a certain context. You are not allowed to discriminate based on age in the arena of hiring somebody. And because it's federal, it only applies to employers of a certain size. Uh, There are also a lot of state and local laws that do these exact same things. So, for example, in Washington, D.C., there's actually a law that says you cannot refuse service to somebody based on their political affiliation. So the whole red hen thing with Sarah Huckabee Sanders where she was asked to leave a restaurant, that was fine in Virginia because Virginia did not have a state or local law banning that. But had that happened in Washington, D.C., the restaurant would have gotten in trouble. So when you look at... Uh, global chains like Dick's Sporting Goods, like Walmart, saying we're not going to sell handguns to anyone under a certain age. There's no federal law that prohibits them from doing that. So federally, they're allowed to, but they will likely run afoul of state and local laws that prohibit age discrimination, uh, depending on the contours of those particular laws. I'm not going to get into them because there are too many and too varied. But for example, I think it was Washington State that the announcement from Dix came in, um, I'm told by lawyers up there that they have a law that prohibits discriminating what you're selling uh, based on someone's age. So theoretically, Dix could be in trouble there unless those state and local legislators change their particular law. But the gist of it is, as a baseline, if you're doing something as a private entity, either as a private citizen or as a private business or anything else that is not the government, not acting on the government's behalf, then the Constitution does not apply to your ability to discriminate against someone else. You have to look at federal, state, and local laws as to whether or not that's prohibited. So, Tim, thank you for that question. Next one is from at Jonimus, who says, In earlier podcasts, you mentioned your views on net neutrality and generally thought both sides were full of it but seemed to agree with repealing it. How do you align that with the stance taken by the ACLU and the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, in support of it to orgs that you support? And the short answer is I don't. I mean, there are a lot of organizations whose work I support, even though we may disagree on certain issues. You know, for example, I've represented several hundred protesters for free working with the uh, NAACP, the Poor People's Campaign, the Moral Mondays folks. Even though I think their political goals a lot of times are batshit lunacy that would bankrupt the state if they were actually implemented, 
because I believe people should have the right to berate the everlasting fuck out of their legislators and demand batshit lunacy. Like, I might not agree with it, but you should have the right to demand it. So I represent them for free in the hopes that maybe one day, if I have batshit lunacy of my own that I want to promote, uh, I'll have the ability to do that, you know? I take the same approach with organizations like the ACLU. You know, the ACLU is a fair-weather friend on a lot of issues. For example, their track record with hate speech is total garbage. They will happily toss the First Amendment in the shit can in the name of hate, of trying to uh, criminalize hate speech, even though one of the key reasons why you don't want to criminalize hate speech is because when you get fuckers like Donald Trump in the White House and these spineless Congress critter shits in Congress, there's nothing stopping them from criminalizing the stuff that you like because they happen to have the power at the time. You know, so the ACLU is questionable on a whole host of issues. And if you talk to a lot of First Amendment lawyers or criminal defense lawyers, they'll tell you the ACLU is utter garbage. But I support them anyway, because on the issues that they get right, having that additional help, those additional resources, it, it takes a load off of me trying to be you know, one among however many people to push this particular issue when you've got someone with institutional heft to pick up the charge. Same deal with EFF. I love the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I think they do phenomenal work on a whole host of issues related to digital rights. But I think they're wrong on net neutrality. I think they're wrong on what the effects are going to be. I think they're wrong on the players that are involved. Now, if they happen to succeed and net neutrality is reinstated, I'm not going to care that much. I mean, it's just one of those issues where it's not a we're all going to die if we don't have it or everything's going to be a utopia if we do. I just don't believe that at all from my standpoint as a guy who did tech for a living before I became a lawyer. Um, but I'm going to take the good they do with the occasional times I disagree with them because they do good work on most stuff. So I, I don't go out of my way to try and make sure that I line up 100% with everything. I mostly decide if y'all are doing generally good work on most of the issues that I care about. And if that's cool, then great. I'll support you. There are some people that, you know, again, going back to the, uh, the Moral Mondays folks, where politically I disagree with them on almost everything politically. But the key issue of, you know, being able to petition your legislators to do something is so vitally important to me that I put all of that aside to sacrifice my own time and money to represent them. So that's how I look at it. So, Jonimus, thank you for the question. Next one is from uh, Sam. He's at Wolfpack underscore five. He says, for the next What the Fist, can you talk about your position on red flag laws? So red flag laws are basically a way to remove guns from people who are credibly accused of having engaged in domestic violence or having a mental health episode or whatever else. Basically, you have a very expedited, uh, limited hearing to take the guns in the first place. And then there's a fuller hearing after the fact for the person to prove basically that they are not a threat to themselves or others. Uh, and this is something that has come about because domestic violence, a past of domestic violence, is one of the top predictors of whether or not someone's going to use a gun to commit a crime. So in general, I support them. I support them as a concept because I think we need to have a way to intervene when you have violent people who are basically surfing under the radar uh, before they do something truly reckless. The question is always going to be about the details because I have also seen shit get abused from my standpoint as an attorney. So, for example, the most common analog to a red flag law in the gun context 
is in North Carolina what we call domestic violence protective orders. These are available under 50B of our general statutes. And they're very powerful. Like the statute gives tremendous power to a judge to take away a person's housing, a person's guns, prohibit them from being within any given number of feet from a petitioner. And it allows the petitioner to seek the initial restraining order ex parte, which means without any notice to the person accused. So they only get to hear, the judge only hears one side of the story for the initial petition. And we've balanced that by saying, look, you know, that's bad from a due process standpoint, but it's fine in this particular context because domestic, uh, domestic violence is so bad, so pervasive, and the time that it would take to have a hearing is time that could be used by the domestic violence abuser to attack the person who's complaining. So we've basically made a compromise and said that this particular structure is valid. Now, normally, I'm fine with it. But for example, I've represented a guy who repeatedly got brought before the court on domestic violence protective order violations when, as we're going through kind of researching his case, he wasn't really doing anything wrong. He had stayed away from his ex-wife. He wasn't trying to talk to her. What would happen is that his kids, they had kids together. The kids would call him to talk to him because they miss their dad. Dad would answer the phone and talk to them. And then the mom would get on the phone and say, you're violating the DVPO, the Domestic Violence Protective Order, and then hang up the phone, call the police, say that he had violated it and have him arrested. And what was happening was that she was doing this repeatedly. You know, dad doesn't get a chance to say to the kids, hey, kids, stop calling me. Uh, And at the same time, he's not prohibited from talking to his kids in the first place. But he would keep getting these charges taken out against him for violating the DVPO. He would get jailed. He would pay bond to get out. And then the wife would never come to court. So the cases would always get dismissed because she would have to be there to testify that he had violated the order. So at one particular point in time, I think I was representing this guy on like nine different cases all at the same time. You know, the last six or seven of them I was doing for free because the guy was going bankrupt just paying the bail bondsman. It was something where the wife was being deliberately vindictive to try and have him lose his job from being in jail all the time and spend all of his money on bonding out. That type of abuse happens. It doesn't happen often, but it happens. So if you're trying to craft a law where you're having abbreviated due process, abridged due process, less due process than you would normally get, you have to find a way to craft it where that's addressed, that that type of thing doesn't happen. Because taking away firearms from someone who is in fact a threat to someone else, I think is fine, it's admirable, it needs to be done quickly. But what I don't want to have happen is people coming to my office who have had a falling out with a spouse or something else that aren't actually planning on hurting anybody. It's just not in their nature. But you now have a new legal process in place and forced at the tip of a gun by a police officer that can force them into this system that makes their life a living hell because that type of abuse does happen. So I I support red flag laws in general. The devil is always in the details. So, Sam, thank you for that question. Next one is from at the Empire 38. We're going to switch gears a little bit. And they ask, what are your thoughts on the light rail plan in Durham? And the short answer is, I don't really know because I have not kept up with the news since 2016. Uh, I, you know, so my thing with rail is that if you look at what's proposed here in Durham and the Raleigh-Durham area more generally, 
the population density prior to construction that we have is so much lower compared to pretty much everywhere else that has light rail, whether it's, you know, places like New York or Bay Area Rapid Transit or St. Louis or even Charlotte over in Charlotte, Mecklenburg, everywhere else has more people per acreage being served than what you would have in the Raleigh-Durham corridor. Because basically the proposal is to have light rail from Raleigh to Durham to Chapel Hill to basically speed going through the triangle because we have a shitload of cars and rush hour sucks. Like rush hour is always terrible. I, I would not mind light rail as a concept because, you know, it would make my life easier not having to sit there, you know, through a commute, but to avoid it being ruinously expensive for the municipalities involved, you have to have people using it and we just don't have enough people. A lot of Wake County is land. A lot of Orange County, frankly, is land. It's only in Chapel Hill that you have a lot of population. Durham as a city is actually pretty packed. Raleigh as a city is pretty packed. But the spaces in between are not. So my big concern is how do you implement it without you know, it costing a fuck ton of money? In addition to that, where are you going to put the stations? Do you put the stations where people actually are who are going to use the system so that you have fair-paying folks to limit the cost to everyone else? Or do you put it where people, the, where the government wants people to live in the future? You know, that's one of the key questions, especially here in Durham, where you look at gentrification that has taken place and historically underserved communities in poor neighborhoods. You know, the entire existence of 147, the highway we have here, was done to basically demolish the old Haytai neighborhood because it was considered too poor. So the government you know, tossed a freeway through the middle of it, and a lot of the stuff got bulldozed. So the question becomes, these poor areas, do you give them a train station so they can actually get the benefit of transit and you know, maybe get a better-paying job, improve their life, that sort of thing? Or... Do you put it in one of the hipper, more urban areas you know, that's up and coming where those folks that need the transportation aren't going to necessarily have access to it? You know, there's a lot of social engineering questions that go into this stuff as well. So it's just it's a complex issue that I'm not really qualified to weigh in on too much. I do like rail compared to bus. I mean, it's something where I've been in several cities that have the metro Washington, D.C. is probably the one I've been to the most, and I actually enjoy taking a metro compared to taking a bus or taking an Uber. I don't know why. I just actually like rail, Um, but it's very expensive, and it's just a questionable use in this particular area. Now, I will say this. I do think the General Assembly passing a state law to effectively uh, block the municipalities from doing this is fucking stupid. You know, if local cities and towns want to band together and fleece their taxpayers for the cost of building it, that should be fine. We shouldn't have politicians in Raleigh making that decision on behalf of local leaders. Um, But beyond that, it's a questionable use of taxpayer money in my mind at this point. And if we decide that it's not a questionable use of the money, you still have the social engineering aspect of it that I'm frankly concerned that the poor people are not going to be on the winning side of that particular decision. So at the Empire 38, thank you for that question. Last one that was one of the public tweets before we get into the DMs is from at V Sungor, and he says, dumber than a bucket full of rusty thumbtacks made me laugh. I've never heard that one before. Is that something people actually say or is it something that you just made up? Uh, so for not just that one, but most of them in general, I try to make them up on my own. 
uh, because I've been going out of my way to figure out other ways to uh, to convey to you all my abject disgust without profanity, trying to come up with something other than that's fucking stupid. Because there are a lot of times where I really wanted to say that's fucking stupid on this podcast. Uh, for that particular one, Dumber Than a Bucket Full of Rusty Thumbtacks, uh, that's actually a modification of one that I've heard in a different context. So I don't know how many of you uh, used to watch the Ernest movies, Ernest P. Whirl, uh, Jim Varney, was hilarious. I watched a lot of those growing up. I have most of them on DVD. Uh, there's a particular movie, Ernest Goes to Camp, where one of the characters describes Ernest as dumber than a bucket full of hair. So I've kept that one as a general comment, but I've tried to swap the hair out for something else. Uh, so Rusty Thumbtacks, uh, Bucket Full of Bricks is one. You know, I just I come up with ridiculous things that you wouldn't normally put in a bucket, and I've used that as an example. But beyond that, I try and come up with stuff on my own so that I can limit the profanity and hopefully make this a more family-friendly podcast over time. The main challenge I have is trying to remember them because saying it's fucking stupid is like permanently tattooed across my brain and it's super easy to remember. Uh, so at Vsungor, thank you for that question. So these are all of the ones that were asked publicly in the show notes. You will see links to the particular tweets if you want to weigh in. Uh, the next ones are all from direct message. So the people who send me DMs, I do not include their name now uh, because Mike pointed out to me that if they're sending things to me via DM instead of a normal tweet, they probably don't want their name mentioned. So we've got one, two, three, four of those that came in via DM. And the first one says, uh, for the What the Fisk episode, was ICE stopping people on I-95 and only letting them go after proving their citizenship? Was that legal? So if you don't remember the facts of this particular case, go back to episode 71 where we talked about it. And basically this was up in Maine. Customs and Border Protection ran a checkpoint for 11 hours and all they got out of it was one minor arrest. Uh, so the downside is, unfortunately, that's probably allowed. It's probably legal. And the reason why uh, is based on the episode 48, Law 140. I'm not going to go back through it uh, because we've already covered it pretty extensively. But essentially, anywhere within 100 miles of the border, you have less constitutional protections than you do otherwise. And that just happens to include the entire state of Maine, practically, as well as the entire state of Florida, the entire state of Michigan, a few other spots. Uh, and based on the Supreme Court precedents that have been decided, if the checkpoint is fairly limited in its scope, so there's a quick stop, they ask you some questions until they're convinced that you're a citizen, and then they let you go, the Supreme Court has decided that is not an infringement on your Fourth Amendment rights and is, in fact, authorized under these particular immigration statutes. It's the INA again. Now, even though it was constitutional, it was allowed under federal law, each state may have specific issues on whether or not evidence found as part of those stops would, in fact, be admissible. So if a federal officer stops you, to try and check whether or not you're a citizen. They decide you're a citizen, but they happen to see weed in the car. You can still be prosecuted for possession of weed, and you can be prosecuted in a state court. There's no obligation that they prosecute you federally for something like that. Well, certain states have, as part of their own case law, decided that checkpoints are disfavored. 
that they inhibit free flow of people and everything else, and that they have to meet certain requirements for evidence collected uh, during them to be admissible in court. So uh, I'm, I'm blanking on these specifics, but typically it has to be announced in advance. You'll occasionally see them printed in the newspaper. There has to be a plan put in place, decided ahead of time, prior to implementation, so on and so forth. So I don't know about Maine law. I know in North Carolina we do have some of those requirements that have to be met. Uh, but if a federal agent finds this stuff as part of a checkpoint that does not comply with those state-level requirements – a state prosecution for any crimes committed as part of that checkpoint uh, wouldn't work. But for immigration purposes, trying to detain somebody who is not a citizen or someone who is a citizen but commits a federal crime that ends up federally prosecuted, for better or worse, that is going to be allowed. The only way that you can change it is by having better Congress critters who change the law or a better president who instructs ICE and CBP to get their shit together and stop harassing people for no reason. Uh, next question. It says, Hey, TDOT, I'm trying to figure out why it should ever really matter who picks a Supreme Court justice. Political ideology shouldn't matter here, no? I mean, it always does matter, but shouldn't the question we ask be, is this person an activist or not? This is coming from a Law 140 knowledge of the system. Uh, so, for better or worse, this is a side effect of the bureaucratization and growth of the government. Uh, it's a side effect of – I don't even know what adjective to use here. I guess juridification, would that, would that be the right word? Basically, having more stuff go through the courts. Uh, so you have more executive agencies doing more regulations. You have more court decisions. You have the government doing more and more things. So because of that, the court takes on greater prominence and who's on it starts to matter more. It's also a side effect of David Souter. Now, David Souter was a justice appointed by Bush 41 who was considered at the time to be a conservative Republican and then ended up becoming a reliable vote with the liberal bloc throughout his time on both the Rehnquist and Roberts courts. So what you see is no more suitors was kind of the, the political cry among conservatives and Republicans. Because of that, there was a greater emphasis on a judge's track record prior to their nomination. So, for example, under Bush 43, when he nominated Harriet Myers, part of the reason why that nomination went down in flames was that Myers had no real history from which people could judge whether or not she would be a reliable conservative vote on the bench. The entire Federalist Society list of judges that had been vetted, part of the vetting process is them being content that they're going to be reliable conservative votes on the court. Now, what does that mean? Short answer is I have no fucking idea because you cannot reliably boil down a Supreme Court justice into any two-dimensional line. You can't do it. You know, Judicial activism is something that people talk about as being bad, but it's baked into our system of government. It's part of our common law system of government. You cannot tell me that the Constitution's necessary and proper clause does not require a judge to interpret what the fuck necessary and proper means. That's just the reality of it. You know What is interstate commerce? A judge has to decide that type of thing. So you're going to have activist judges who happen to be conservative or who happen to be liberal. They're still going to be making law from the bench because we are in a common law system of government. We've been that way since the founding. You know, Conservative versus liberal. What's the conservative view on international shoe? 
and minimum contacts analysis. If someone can tell you what it is, they're lying to you because there is no specifically conservative opinion on it. You look, for example, at Fourth Amendment stuff, there's not even a conservative opinion among the five conservatives on the bench. They have different views. Gorsuch is conservative, but he's far more skeptical of police power than Alito, who never saw a search he didn't like. You know, so you look at this type of stuff and trying to boil things down into a left-right spectrum is just dumb. It's absolutely dumb. But people have what is called rational ignorance. They have better things to do with their time, their interests, their education, you know, than to focus on the nuances of the Supreme Court. So what happens is all of this stuff gets boiled down to key points. It gets boiled down to narratives. One of the things that always confounds people when you start talking about Supreme Court justices is how objectively terrible Merrick Garland was. Had Obama succeeded in having Garland appointed to the Supreme Court, Democrats would be having a hissy fit because he sucked. There never would have been a case that he didn't find in the government's favor, and that would have been fine under Obama, but it would not have been fine under Trump. So you try and talk to them about that, and they don't get it. They, they just vehemently, reflexively say, no, you're wrong. Merrick Garland was great. It's a stolen seat, blah, 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 even though Merrick Garland was trash. He was absolutely terrible. If Obama wanted to really satisfy his progressive base, he would have found a more liberal appointee to nominate. Uh, but that's just the, the nature of Supreme Court justices. They do not fit neatly within political lines. And you see some of that in the news coverage. I can't remember the particular case, but Gorsuch voted with the liberals not too long ago, uh, back in early May. And people were confounded. They didn't understand how this happened because he's considered the, uh, the Scalia replacement. He's part of the conservative bloc. Well, great. I get that. But natural rights views of certain things skew what we consider politically liberal in certain instances. Uh, so a natural rights justice like Gorsuch is, is going to align with the liberal bloc sometimes, just like Scalia did. Uh, so anyhow, point is, it all boils down to key points, boils down to narratives, because that's what makes it easier for people to understand and digest. And one of the most enduring narratives of the past 30-something years is that you got four conservatives, you got four liberals, and you got one justice in the middle. It's been that way for as long as I can remember. It used to be O'Connor was considered the moderate. Kennedy was part of the, the conservative bloc. And then O'Connor stepped down, and you got Alito as her replacement, so Kennedy was in the swing seat. But beyond that, every justice that's been appointed has been part of the bloc that has been their replacement. So, for example, uh, when Breyer stepped down, you got Sotomayor. When John Paul Stevens, a liberal, stepped down, you got Elena Kagan, who's also a liberal. When Rehnquist stepped down, you got Roberts. When Scalia died, you got Gorsuch. There's been just this swap, swap for swab on the block ever since. So Kennedy resigning, the guy in the swing seat, has triggered sheer terror among a lot of people, mostly liberals, because it's Trump in office and their stuff is on the line at the Supreme Court. But frankly, among conservatives like me who have no faith that Trump will pick a competent justice and no faith that the Senate will stop him from appointing an incompetent justice, you know, it's scary to me too. It's a stupid narrative, but it's an enduring narrative. Um, and the only way really to change it is to change the appointment process. You know, I talked about this in, well, it's not today's episode. The episode you will have gotten tomorrow, but it'll be a week from now from when you hear this. Uh, so basically go back to the episode before this one. We talk about Kennedy's retirement and potential changes to reduce the sheer terror that justices retiring invoke. 
And part of that would be to put term limits on Supreme Court justices. You know, give them 18 year terms, then every president gets two appointees, and you kind of know ahead of time which folks are coming off the bench and who's going to be appointed. It becomes less of a big deal. Uh, reducing the amount of government that is in your life will help reduce the importance of the court, but we all know that's not going to happen. Um, so stuff like that, you know, there are ways to limit the sheer terror involved in who is appointing a justice, but until those things change, it's going to be the president that matters and who has 51 votes in the Senate. And we've reached a point politically where you're not going to be able to successfully get a Supreme court nominee through unless the party controls both the presidency and the Senate at the same time, whether it's Republican or Democrat. If you have split government, I don't think you're going to get a Supreme Court justice through anymore. Uh, maybe that'll change. Maybe we'll go back to an era of you know norms where you saw things happen uh, more regularly, more actual legislating and appointing and confirming, but I doubt it because I think under Harry Reid and then under Mitch McConnell, you just saw things change so drastically compared to the past that I don't think there's any going back anytime soon. Uh, so yeah, it, it, people are going to be terrified and that's just part of life. So thank you for that particular question. Next one says, hi there. I'm a listener for the last few months, just became a backer too. I'm going to do a sidebar. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Uh, I've got a question for the what the Fisk episode. Should I lie about my views on the criminal justice system when I'm called for jury duty? I was recently called, and when asked by the state's prosecutor if I had any general views or opinions, I answered honestly. I had tons of examples, in part thanks to your podcast, and after I stated what I believe are objective facts about the system, I was dismissed. If everyone who believes the system is flawed gets dismissed from jury duty, that seems like a bad thing. Thanks for all the great work, and keep it up. Now, this is a challenging question, and I actually I, I sent this person a message back saying that I'd have to keep marinating on it to figure out what my answer would be because they've got a point. It's so hard to find jurors who want to serve. They actively don't want to avoid jury duty that the people who end up you know, w being willing to serve, if you find out that you're going to kick them off because they don't put blind faith in the prosecution, which happens. I mean, it's just the reality of it. Um, you end up with a very difficult jury system in general. So this particular person has spot on identified a true bona fide problem. Uh, but it's more complex than that because one, you shouldn't lie in general. I just think lying as a general rule of thumb is bad. You know, there are certain purposes to it. I get, we, we talk about the morality of white lies. Um, but I, I just don't think something as serious as jury duty you should never misrepresent who you are. Now, I, I tell people, don't volunteer information that's not asked for. I tell that to my clients. I tell that to people on the street. And that should apply to potential jurors, too. I mean, because the burden really is on us during jury selection to make sure that we're, you're someone that we think can be fair and impartial. And to do that, we're trained to ask open-ended questions to get you to talk. You know, who, what, when, where, how? Who are you? What do you think about this? Can you tell me more? You know, that type of thing. Uh, what happened next? What happened next? What happened next? Those types of questions to get jurors to volunteer information and start talking. Uh, but lying about it, it's also in addition to just being potentially immoral, it's also likely a crime. Uh, and what that means is if you're the person who's always going to get kicked off of jury duty, you know, I'm going to say first, that includes me. I've been summoned for jury duty like five times. I've never served. 
Uh, because one in a criminal case, the prosecutors would be stupid to ever have me on the jury. They just would. I'm not saying I would never vote to convict somebody. I probably would, but I would be scrutinizing the fuck out of all of their police witnesses because I've just seen too much stuff as part of this podcast. Um, but what that means is your role in improving the system will just have to be through a different venue. It just won't be part of the courts. You know, I'm a big believer and I've mentioned this on Twitter there's something called the five boxes theory of rights. This notion that our rights are best secured by five different boxes, the ballot box, the deposit box, the soap box, the jury box, the cartridge box. Those are the five boxes. So you have the soap box is to persuade people to protect your rights through discourse, through talking. The deposit box, voting with your wallet is to persuade economically. If the laws aren't to your liking, you go somewhere else. The ballot box and the jury box are to nullify bad politicians and bad laws by either voting people out or, in the court context, refusing to convict someone who has violated a law that you consider unjust. And then the cartridge box is the last line of defense. It's something where, you know, contrary to talk of preventing a government takeover, really what you're doing is you're limiting government overreach by driving up the potential cost of government intervention. You know, no person thinks that a guy with, you know, a Beretta and an M16 is going to stop the government from invading his home when they've got tanks and SWAT teams and everywhere else. You know, no one believes that. No Second Amendment supporter believes that. But if each individual person is potentially able to inflict either a personal or physical cost on the government for that type of action, that changes the calculus on the part of the government. You know, the whole notion of the standoff out West with the Bundys, part of why the Obama administration stood down is because you had a shitload of well-armed people and the costs, the potential costs were very high. Uh, You look at Waco under Bill Clinton, Ruby Ridge, all these other examples where a standoff increase the potential risks to the government. uh, And because of that, the government backed off. Or in the case of Waco, they just fried the place. Um, So I'm a big part, I'm a big believer in that five boxes theory. I think there's a lot of merit to it. What that means is your job, to the extent we can call it a job, your, your hobby, your avocation, your way of helping improve the clusterfuck of our criminal justice system will have to be through something else. You know, maybe that's voting out local politicians who suck. Maybe that's running for office yourself, starting a blog, starting a podcast, whatever. Uh, There are other ways where you can assist beyond jury duty. And the hope is that other people eventually picked for jury duty will one day agree with your particular views on things without having to lie about it. So that was my that was my response. Initially, a part of me was like, you know, fuck it. Yeah, lie about it. But the more I thought about it, I'm like, you know, that's not right. Let's not do that. It just means your calling is going to be somewhere else. So thank you for that particular question that made me think at length about an answer. Uh, Next one is, what is the best way for listeners from platforms such as Podcast Addict to help promote your show that do not require a bullhorn at the streetlights? So I'm going to say bullhorns help. I'm going to be totally honest with you. If you have a bullhorn, great. If you don't have one, go get one. That would be fantastic. Uh, No, I'm kidding. So most of our listeners come from Apple Podcasts. And we get about two-thirds of our listeners on that platform, and a good chunk of the remainder are on Stitcher or, you know, uh, what's it called, TuneIn. But out of that group, the 10-15% that are left come from a whole wide variety of stuff. 
uh, Podcast Addict, Downcast, Pocket Cast, a whole bunch of other apps. And I love all of you. You know, I don't want you to feel like just because you're on a smaller platform in terms of number that I don't need you because a good chunk of the content generated on this show are things that y'all send me. You know, in addition to the stuff I find myself, I get a lot of tweets from people who are sending me stories and, you know, making sure that I've seen a particular thing. Um, So the way that you all can best help is partly through your own individual bullhorns, whether that's your Twitter account, your Facebook account, LinkedIn, wherever you happen to be on social media, uh, share our episodes. And, and when you share them, don't just say, hey, I listened to this episode and it's great. Uh, I appreciate those. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but share the episode links from the fiscamall.com website because that'll include the cover art and the title, which I try to make you know evocative at least some of the time. Uh, and then also ask people, you know, what do you think of this? Do you agree with this particular scenario or this particular take? Or, you know, what do you think of the story and so on? And also do it on an individual by individual basis. You know, folks like me, I accidentally went viral two years ago and never even thought that it was something that was going to happen. But because of that, I have a lot more followers, so I can just tweet out general stuff and people see it and respond to it. If you don't have that type of reach, it's more effective for you to talk to folks one-on-one. You know, say, hey, Bob, heard you were talking about this particular issue the other day. Here's a podcast with this story. Give it a listen. Let me know what you think. You know, hey, Sally, you had this question about the law. Here's a Law 140 primer. You should check it out, that sort of thing. Uh, A lot of people find us through social media, so that type of one-on-one social media interaction is still the best way to do it. Um, if that doesn't work, if you don't have a lot of friends and you don't want to do that type of thing, uh, you can also help out in different ways. The main one, frankly, is financial. I'm going to tell y'all to join the Patreon account if you haven't already, um, patreon.com slash Fisk. We don't ask for much. Every dollar helps. Uh, but then beyond that, it's really just letting people know that you listen and you can do that through leaving a rating or review on the Apple podcast app or Stitcher. So that even if you don't have people you can convince to listen, you can say, hey, I'm a listener, and that helps make other people more comfortable listening to us because there's strength in numbers, and this is a a very niche podcast. I I recognize that. I mean, we've got roughly 1,500 subscribers, give or take a few, who tune in every week to hear me go on at length about all of the fucked up shit in our criminal justice system. Like, that's not a normal thing. I'm not saying y'all are abnormal. I'm just saying that's not like a, a, uh, this is not going to become one of the biggest podcasts in the world overnight type deal because most people don't want to listen to this stuff. They either don't care about it, they don't know that it's a problem, or they do care, but they listen to it and they just get terribly fucking depressed because it never ends. There's always new stuff every single week. So by finding out that there are other people who are listening, who's left a review, left a rating, uh, posted a blog entry about it, that sort of stuff, that makes it just a little bit more likely that they'll be willing to tune in and give us a try. And if they don't like it, no harm, no foul. They weren't listening to us before. They're not going to listen to us in the future. No big deal. But if they find out that they do like it, then that's awesome because that's more people in the family. And if something happens where it turns out that they love it, then now the people that they bring in are folks that really, it's on you. you. You brought them into the family. 
So every other person that they get, I'm going to say you got because you helped get that person in the door. So that would be the way to do it. So use your social media outlets to reach out to your friends if you have them. If you don't have friends, we will happily take your money. It helps me ensure that Mike is happy and stays here because I don't know how to do this stuff. Uh, And if you don't have friends or money, at the very least, give us a rating or review so that other people know that you're here and that you're listening. And I also want to say thank you for being willing to help be an advocate on our behalf because I think that's fucking awesome. I just think it's, it's, it's something where when we started this podcast a year and a half ago or a year and two months ago at this point, I did not anticipate us having like avid, super avid listeners. Like to me, it was something that was going to be more of a repository of stories because I'd actually set up a website. Uh, It was called Warrior Cops Gone Wild. I basically mimicked it after the Girls Gone Wild videos that uh, they used to do. And it was just a compilation of fucked up cop stories. And what happened was it was too difficult for me to keep track of and do the web coding for it to make it actually useful. So I took it down after like two weeks. Well, the podcast basically became that. So the show notes became the repository of all the cool stories. And to me, that was the main purpose of it when we started. But now, if we don't release on time on a Monday, I've got people who will send me tweets and say, hey, Greg, what's going on? I I was expecting a podcast and it's not there. I'm kind of freaked out. And that's just so cool to me. Like that is just incredibly awesome. So thank you for being a listener. Thank you for being a supporter. Thank you for being willing to be an advocate on behalf of the podcast. I think that is fantastic. At some point in the future, we're going to have like shirts or something so that I can just like send you stuff as a thank you. We're not there yet, but one day. That is part of the one-day long-term mission, I promise you. So, folks, that is it. That is all of the questions we've got, all the Twitter stuff, all of the DMs. Uh, So if you liked what you've heard, if you liked the answers, do us a favor. Leave us that rating or written review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Podcast Addict or wherever you happen to get your podcasts. Uh, And as always, on behalf of myself and Mike, the sound guy, thank you for listening. Have a great week. Uh, I'm gonna. I guess technically it's going to be two weeks from when I've recorded this, but a, a week since you've heard it. Uh, so have a great week, and I will talk to you on Monday, July 16th. Take care. <laughs>